So we are continuing our series in the book of James. And as we have, as I have mentioned when we started James, James is a very practical book. In my opinion, perhaps one of the more most practical books, next to maybe Proverbs, James is perhaps one of the most practical books in the Bible. And, and while, you know, there are practical truths, full of practical truth, we always have to look at these verses in the context of the overall message, what James is trying to get at. So the temptation in studying James, and also temptation when we're studying the Bible on our own, is we're just tempted to only focus on a couple of verses, rather than putting these verses within the context of the overall chapter. For example, last week, we started our sermon about anger, right? Verses, chapter 1, verses, what was it? Um, 19 to 20 was about anger, controlling our anger. And, and, you know, remember what James wrote? James says, you know, you should be slow to speak. I'm quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to be angry. And he gave us a lot of practical advice of controlling our anger. And while certainly these two verses talk about anger, if you examine these verses in the light of the greater, in the light of the entire chapter, in the light of chapter one in its entirety, we realize not only is James talking about how we should be careful about anger, but James is really talking about our response, right, when we hear the word of God. It's not so much about anger that James talks about these verses, but about how we should respond to God's word. So when James is, when James is talking about anger, he's really saying, when you hear the word of God, be quick to listen to the word of God. Slow to speak when you listen to the word of God. That basically means don't act with shallow understanding. Don't speak with shallow understanding about God. And number three, when God speaks to you, right, don't get offended. Submit to it. It's really about the word of God. Chapter 1, verses 18 to 27 is really about the word of God. Verse 18, James says, all of us have been born again by, through the word of God. To be honest with you, you know, even though born again comes, you know, it, it, it is Jesus' word to describe people who are made new, right? And that's clearly in John. I, 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 you know, it's clear that's what we are. But another word to describe being born again is being regenerate. I really like the word regeneration. Regenerate means made, li- made, li- made live again, regenerate. And James is saying we all of us are regenerated as the word, as we listen to the word, as the word persuades us. That's chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter, verses 19 to 25 is about how we mature in Christ. Verse 18 is about how we became born again, how we became regenerate. Verses 19 to 25 is how we mature in Christ. We are born again through the word, but we, are, we mature, we grow as we listen to the word of God, as we strive to learn more deeply about God, 
when God reveals offensive things about us, rather than being put off by it, accept what he reveals about us, right? We mature not only when we accept what, when God reveals bad things about us, but we also mature when we actually start doing what he says. That's how you mature as a Christian. When God speaks to you, you listen. You go to God, expect it every morning. You expect that God's going to speak to you. And so you are quick to listen to God each day. That's how you mature. You mature when you understand that your understanding of God and my understanding of God is very shallow. The daily, we need to have a deepening understanding of God. We cannot just be satisfied with the knowledge of God that we have right now, thinking that we know everything there is to know about God. No. You humble yourself and know what you know about God is not deep enough. You need to go deeper. So you go to God this, every morning expecting to listen to him, wanting to know more deeply about him. Number three, once again, when God reveals your sins, repent before the Lord and not be offended. When the Lord reveals his will to you and me, We strive to do what it says. That's how you grow in the Lord. That's how you mature in the Lord. If we do not do these things, if we're not maturing in the Lord, we remain spiritual infants. If you're not listening to the Lord, if you're not starting to learn more about him deeply, if you're not doing what he says, James is saying, or James is implying, you are a spiritual infant. And being a spiritual infant, it's, it has cost. There are consequences of being a spiritual infant. A lot of us think being spiritually mature is reserved for church leaders and small group leaders. We think, as long as my leaders are mature, that's good. I don't have to be mature That's not true. Being a spiritual infant has consequences in our lives. And the best example that I can give you is the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is telling the Corinthian church, y'all are infants. You guys are babies. What? And, And because they are babies, There are divisions in the church. There is pride in the church. There is immorality in the church. Because they're infants. Being spiritually mature is not only reserved for Jedi masters here. It is the call for all Christians. Because if we're immature, we hurt ourselves, we hurt our family members, we hurt the church if we remain in our infancy. You understand? Comprenda. I think someone, I had lunch with people and they correct my Spanish during last week. Comprenda? Look, let's be real real here because all of us are about being real real. May I suggest, or may I advise, or may I say, A lot of the misery in our lives 
We would want to blame it on another source, external source, such as your spouse or your boss or your, you know, whatever life situation that you're in. We would like to blame it on a third party. But perhaps the underlying root cause of your misery, of your conflict, of your depression, of your anger, and my anger, is our spiritual infancy. Maybe the cause is not someone else. But may I say, it's, it's our immaturity. Is that me? But maybe that's true. James, in chapter, what verse is it? Chapter 25, I think he says, those who listen to the word of God and who do the word of God are blessed. The word blessed here means people who listen to the word and do the word are joyous because they know that God is at work in their lives. They are blessed because they have this palpable sense of God moving in their lives. That God is more than Sunday sermons. God is real, right? Christians could have this real life experience with God every day. But that blessing is reserved for those who listen to what he says and strive to do it. The problem of being a spiritual infant is not only do we cause damage to ourselves, to the church, to other people, but more importantly, we don't feel, we don't know, we don't experience the presence of God in our lives. If you are spiritually dry, May I suggest, it is because you are immature in your spirituality. And by immature, I mean, you're you're not listening to what he has to say. You are not striving to learn more about him. And you don't want to obey him. Not listening to him, not obeying him. You know what we're doing? We're like, placing a boundary between us and him. We're putting a line on our ground and says, God, you can only come this much, but you can't come deeper. You can't come closer to me. I still want to keep my distance from you. Not listening to him is we're keeping our distance from him. God wants to reveal himself powerfully, mightily to us. He really does. He's speaking to you every day. And you can experience him. You really can. But because we draw the boundary lines and say, God, I'm not going to let you in closer than this line here. That's why we don't, we don't, that's why we're immature. And that's why all, there are a lot of problems in our lives. Brenda, por favor. But it is interesting, though. People who are spiritual infants can think that they're religious. Even though we are spiritually immature, we st- immature people can still consider themselves religious. In fact, even unbelievers can consider themselves religious. 
That's one of the James's main point here in verses 25, 26. What does the word religious mean? Religious just basically means, um, it, is, it means, what does it mean? I had a really good definition. Here we go. External pattern of worship, external pattern of worship offered to God. The word religion is an external act, right? An external act that we do as a mode of worship. It is perfectly possible to act religiously externally and yet remain either a spiritual infant or even an unbeliever. You can act religiously on the outside. But it doesn't mean, James is saying, it doesn't mean that your religion is true. This example are the Pharisees. My goodness, those Pharisee dudes, they were religious. They knew the religious requirements of the Mosaic laws backwards and forwards. They were always thinking about how to best comply with God's religious requirements. They devoted their lives to look, look at the Old Testament to see how God wants to be worshipped, and they strive to do it. They prayed a certain way, they gave a certain way, they attended worship, worship in certain ways, in certain times. They were devoted in complying with the proper mode of worship. Right? I mean... In the Old Testament, in, 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 in you know, Jewish traditions, there are volumes of books devoted to what is allowed on a Sabbath. What can or can you not do you know, in the Sabbath? Sabbath is, God told Israelites, rest, don't work. So they wrote volumes of the definition of what, not, what it means not to work. How high can, your foot, can you lift your foot right, and consider it not working? Right? What can you do on, on Saturday, on the Sabbath, that will not constitute working? So they were devoted in religious compliance. But you know and I know, they're the ones who killed Jesus. Right? It's not an anti-Semitic statement. It's just, you know, New Testament history. The Jewish leader, the Pharisees, were responsible for Jesus' death. They were religious, but their religion wasn't true. You can be externally compliant, but it doesn't mean your religion is true. These external acts of religion and thinking ourselves that we're religious because we're doing these external acts of religion, that is very common in humanity. All of us, I think we split our minds into two. There's a religious side of us, and there's a non-religious side of us. And we think the religious side of us is only reserved for one day of the week. If you're faithful, two, because, or three, because you go to prayer meetings in small groups. We think, okay, the religious side is me doing certain things. But there's a non-religious side, which is everything that I do are part of these religious things that I do. There is a segregation between the religious side and the non-religious side. And we think as long as we comply in accordance with the religious side, it makes us religious. And James is saying that's not true. 
What you do on the outside, it doesn't make you religious. I mean, Pastor Rudy and I tell you every Sunday, right? Coming to church doesn't make you religious on Sundays. It doesn't. The, look, am I... This is important what we do here, right? What we're doing here is important. Gather, people of God gathering together, worshiping, is perhaps one of the most important things that we can do. And I'm not downplaying the value of what we're doing here. But thinking that we're religious because of our attendance, it doesn't make our religion true. Look, when I first got here, there's this guy. He's no longer here, so it's not about you. He always asked me, hey, PJ, how many times have you read the Bible? How many times have you fasted? He never asked me, do you know what is in the Bible? He never asked me what was actually in the Bible. He says, how many times have I read the Bible? As if reading it itself is enough. How many times have I fasted? As if the activity of fasting itself is what makes my religion true. You see that behavior? Doing religious things, we think, that's religious. Doesn't. What is the true religion? Verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. What is the evidence of true religion according to James? Whether you, know or whether you know that you are religious or not, it reveals in the way you speak how you use your tongue. Whether you are a true worshiper of God or not, it's not revealed through this external act of compliance, but how you use your tongue, how I use my tongue. Why? Because our tongues reveals our thoughts. The words that we use, the way that we speak, reveals the thoughts in our heads. You will know whether you truly know God or not. But the things that you say, which comes from what you think. So I think James is implying here. Your tongue represents whether you're really thinking after God's thought or not. Shanta? It is not external act, religious acts that is the evidence of a transformed life. It's what you say based on how you think. That's the evidence. Look, our tongue's language is a wonderful thing. It, it's a miracle of humanity that we get to express ourselves in language. We get to express complex thought with language. Um, one of the guys that I'm a big fan of, his name is David Berlinski, atheist mathematician right, and science writer. David Berlinski thinks macroevolution, you know, where one species can transform to another species, he thinks that's a joke. Macroevolution, where a whale can be a cow and a cow can be a human being. He thinks that's just a joke because there's no evidence suggested that's even possible. 
And one of the main reasons why he's against macroevolution is that there is no species in the world like that of a human being who have an innate ability for language. Apes communicate, dolphins communicate right clearly. They make sounds. Is that how dolphins speak? I don't know. Right? Like that's how apes speak, I would imagine, right? But the human being is the only creature that has the ability to create language. And not only that, express ourselves in the most complex Express our, explain the most complex concepts with our language. I think our ability to speak is, is the prime evidence that we're made in the image of God. We're made in the image of logos, the language of the universe. Our language can be used to do great things. It can be used to preach. It can be used to counsel people. It could be used for creative endeavors. It can be used to build true connections. It can be used to build amazing things. Language. God has blessed us with the power of language. The language, you also know, perhaps one of the most destructive forces in our arsenal. James chapter 3. We're going to talk more about our tongue in James chapter 3. But what does James say in James chapter 3? He says, consider, consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. He says, just like a forest fire can be started with a small spark, our tongues have wield such destructive power in our lives. It says it sets the course of our lives on fire which means our tongues can destroy everything in our lives. This great gift that God has given us, if misused, can be a sheer force of utter destruction. You know it to be true. Our true religion is reflective of how we use our tongue, which is based on how we think. These are the words of Christ. What did, what did Jesus say? And Jesus in, I've got to take better notes here. Matthew chapter 15, verse 18. Jesus says, But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. From out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adult, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Jesus is basically saying, you speak based on what your heart is. Heart is not just emotion. Heart is your mind, a center of who you are. 
Your words, my words, reflect what is in our hearts. And if our words do not mirror the kindness of words, the life-giving words of God, if we use our language to destroy more than build up, that is the evidence that our minds are not really changed. You can act all religiously as you want. You can serve the church till you're blue in the face. But if your mind is not persuaded, your religion, James says, is worthless. And we deceive ourselves thinking that, we've, that we're religious just because we do these external things. I'll give you an example. My home church in Korea, God bless them, a lot of prayer warriors in that church, right? A lot of, you know, elderly, like, prayer, like, elderly, you know, grandma prayer warriors get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to pray for the church and their family, right? Like, go to all-night prayer sessions on Friday, right? Oh, they are prayer warriors. But unfortunately, a lot of these prayer warriors are the source or or the main source of gossip in the church. The same women who can pray early morning prayer meetings often are the same people who read gossip and slander in the church. A lot of the churches that I've been to, even in EM, for example, a lot of the gossip and slander that is going on within the church are started by those who are involved in ministry. People who are serving this committee, that committee, this committee, doing this and that, oftentimes in the, in the back speak ill and lies and gossip about fellow Christians in the church. The grandma prayer warriors, those involved in the ministry, all believe that their religion is true because they do external acts of religious worship. But if they use their tongue for gossip and slander and to degrade another human to degrade another human being, especially the members of the church, perhaps they're really not religious at all. That's James's main point. Not so much what we do, but how we speak, which reflects how we think, is the evidence of our religious worship. Is your worship, are you worshiping a true religion? Is your religion true? How do you know? Listen to what you, how you speak. Listen to how you speak. That's the indicator of what your religion is. That's the point of chapter 24. Verse 25. How do we control our tongue? How do we control our tongue? We control our tongue by changing how we think. Once again, our tongues are a reflection of how we think. We just can't say, stop cursing, 
and expect us to stop cursing. Our minds need to be persuaded not to curse. Our minds need to be renewed. Our minds need to be conformed to the thoughts of God. Look, what is the gospel? Gospel is listening to the reality of the sovereignty of God. Listening to the reality of our magnificent design and yet our horrible fallenness. Gospel is listening to the fact that God did not leave us alone in our miserable state. That he actively sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to pay for our sin. And when we are united with him, we are no longer sinners, but we become forgiven children of God. And our destiny is not death, but resurrection. When we listen to this gospel presentation, the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, will come into your mind and says, that is true. Whatever Peter just said, that is true. The Holy Spirit testifies to your mind and to your heart that the gospel message is true. I remember how I was saved. I was at a retreat, right? I'm a Korean, so of course I get converted in retreats, right? Retreat, pastor was preaching about Romans chapter 8. I felt my brain cracked open and light coming in. And the light was saying, what you just listened to is true. Has that happened to you? Has the Holy Spirit come into your mind and says, the gospel is true? How do you know you've experienced that? You experience the way you know that your faith is true is if your thoughts begin to change. The thing about sin is that our thoughts and God's thoughts are disagreement. Right? That's what sin is. God's will, God's mind, we don't agree with. But one of the fruits of salvation is what God has to say makes sense to us. and We want to conform to what God has to say. And when our thoughts conform to what God has to say, how we speak will change. Understand? Give you an example. There's this woman, and I listened to a podcast. I love podcasts. God bless him. This woman's name was Trace, is Tracy Camilla Hughes. And Tracy Camilla Hughes, when she was in her early 20s, she starred in Spike Lee's, one of, one of Spike Lee's first movies. We all know who Spike Lee is? Really, Phil, you know who Spike Lee is? My goodness. Spike Lee is one of the famous American, African-American film directors in, in the U.S., right? And Tracy Camilla Hughes, in her early 20s, landed a starting role in, 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 what's his name? Spike Lee's first movie. And she showed great promise. But her acting career did not end up fulfilling that promise. She shined brightly for that moment, and her start and her stars started to fade. She thought she was going to be famous, didn't happen. She thought she was going to be rich, it didn't happen. In fact, she became more she became more financially strapped. No one was offering her roles 
No one was giving her money. She got severely depressed. She had no place to live. She was living, sleeping on, on the floor of her manager's house. She auditioned for a role, and she thought she would get that role, but she didn't. And that was the last straw. She went on a binger, drugs, alcohol. She had a last binger, and she says she was going to go to her friend's house and kill herself. After the bender, after the drugs, alcohol, she went to her friend's house. Her friend asked her to house sit for her. And she was looking for knives to kill herself. But fortunately, her friend only had butter knives, so that can't work. So she was like crying out to God, God, where are you? Someone prayed for me in the past saying that God has a great plan for me. I don't know whether that's true. God, where are you? I'm going to kill myself. She was like crying out to God. But a miracle happened, she said. The moment she cried out, she felt a heavy pressure pressing her chest. Heart attack? No. This external pressure was pressing her. She said, God? Then she passed out. She woke up 12 hours later. She says, all the burden I had was gone. She met God that moment. All the depression, all the negativity, it was all gone. One of the first things that it ha- one of the first thing that happened to her after that conversion experience, she says, the way I spoke changed. I used to be so negative. I used to curse a lot. That's, that's all gone. I don't even want to talk like that anymore. That's an example of how you control our tongue. She had an encounter with God who changed the way she thinks. Changing the way she thinks changes the way she speaks. That kind of dramatic religious experience is not common. But we don't need that kind of religious experience to listen to the voice of God. That's what I'm trying to tell you. God will speak to you through his word every day. He does. When you meditate upon who he is, when you try to strive to understand who he is, just don't read the Bible and say, hmm, what does the word of God have to speak to me about today? Not with that kind of attitude, but really trying to understand who God is through the scripture. When you strive to do it and when you meditate upon the truth of God, he will speak to you. When he speaks to you, your thoughts will start to conform after his thoughts. And when your thoughts start to conform after his thoughts, the way you speak will change. Does that make sense? How do you control your tongue? Encounter the voice of God who will change your thoughts. Shutting our ears to his voice. What we're, ha- what we're doing is we're not making our thoughts think after his thoughts. And therefore, the way we speak will never change. 
Once again, these, this, these verses in chapter 1 is about the word of God. How do you control your tongue? Let the word of God speak to you so that God will change the way you think. That's the evidence of true religion. Evidence of true religion is a change in your thinking. You can do external religious acts. You can come to church. You can read the Bible 20,000 times. But if if God doesn't change your thoughts, the evidence is that your religion is false. Aprenda? What is another evidence of true religion? Verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What is another evidence of true religion? Do you look after, do we look after, do we visit the orphans and the widows? Verse 27, James says, pure and undefiled. I think he uses the word pure and undefiled. It's because he's writing, James is writing this letter to the Jewish Christian. And Jewish Christians are very much aware of how God demands purity and undefiled things during worship services. For example, in the Jewish tradition, before the priest can come up and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, the priest has to cleanse himself, right? That's, that's, where is that? That is, that is in, you'll get my notes later. That is in Exodus, right? Before the priest can offer himself to, to, to offer services, he needs to go purify himself with his clothes, with his hands. He needs to clean himself before he can worship God. When people in the Old Testament, when they come to the temple, they have to offer sacrifices to God. The sacrifices, the animal sacrifices they give up to God has to be perfect. They cannot have any you know, blemishes in them. For example, for our sake, if this was the Old Testament, when we're offering before, the God, before God, our dollar bills, our $100 bills, if you're Sean, Sean Kim's, right, the $100 bill can't be wrinkled. It has to be crisp, clean. The Jewish people know that when they worship God, they have to do with clean things. James is saying in verse 27, what God considers pure and undefiled is not so much these physical things you bring before him at worship. What God considers a pure and undefiled worship, the person, number one, who visits the orphan and the widow. More important than offering up these clean things before him, A true worshiper is a person who looks after the orphans and the widows. Who are the orphans and the widows? Keep in mind, James' time, Roman society, Jewish society, is a very patriarchal-based society. It is through the husband and the father 
that a person has standing. If you don't have a husband or a father, you don't have standing in society. You are the weak person in society. You need a father and a husband to give you your voice and value in society. If you don't have a father or a husband, you can get abused. No one will take care of you. These are the truly weak people in society, the orphans and the widows. James is saying, the religion that God considers pure and undefiled are those people who visit the orphans and the widows. What does it mean to visit? It is to personally look after. The word visit, it has involved a personal component to it. When I visit you, I take my body and I physically go to where you are. That's visitation, right? When James says visiting orphans and widows means you're not just throwing money at the problem. You're not just donating money to the orphans and widows. That's not the idea. The idea is you're taking a personal action to take care of the physical needs of the orphans and widows. Get personally involved. That's the command here. How do you know your religion is true? Are you personally involved uh, with the weak people in society? We're starting our foster care ministry here. Foster care is the the American society's way of taking care of the orphans. America doesn't have orphanages anymore. We have the foster care system. And we want to participate in such a ministry. But Megan Kim, God bless her, she came to me and she says, I just don't want to donate to an organization, which is a fine endeavor, by the way. But I want to do a ministry where we can get involved in the life of these people. And I think that's the consistent way we obey the commandments in verse 27. To get personally involved to those who are weak. This is a type of religion that God considers pure and undefiled. A compassionate heart that gets personally involved to the weak, weak of society. But we need to understand what is the motive behind why we do the things that we do. The reasons why Christians get involved in the life of the weak people in society is because we're merely reciprocating what we receive from God. As I said in the call of worship, we were all once very weak. We're still very weak but we are weak and helpless against the power of sin within and against the power of sin outside of us. And we were weak and helpless in the face of death. No matter how great we are, how smart we are, whatever it is, all of us were destined for death. We were underneath death's dominion. 
We were underneath sin's power. We didn't know what, what, what truth was. We didn't know, you know, any, we needed to know God. All we knew was our desires and our feelings. And these desires and feelings that we have were messing our lives up. We were weak under the power of sin and death. But how did Jesus, how did God save us? Did he text us? Saying, oh man, you guys are under the sin and dominion of sin and death. Too bad. I love you. Did he merely text his love for us? Did he merely tweet his love for us? He said, oh, it is so unfair that you guys are under the power of sin and death. Ooh, in the, in the angry emoji. Did he merely tweet his support for us? Did he throw money at our problems? Oh, man, you guys are under the dominion of sin and death. Here's a billion dollars to solve your problem. Did he throw money at the problem? John 3.16, God so loved the world, gave us his only begotten son. We are rescued from sin and death because God actively gave us his son through whom we have been rescued. That's the reason why we take care of the weak. Because we were weak, but we received mercy. This is different from the world's motivation of helping the poor. By God's grace, whether you're a believer or unbeliever, people have a sense of mercy, and they do want to take care of the weak in society. And that's true. But the motive is different. There are various motives, and, it doesn't, and, and their motives doesn't diminish the good that they do. But there's a difference between the motive between the Christian and the, un, un, and, and the, and, and the non-Christian. Perhaps, just according to economist Thomas Sowell, many people, many powerful elites want to help the poor because they have a low view of the poor. They think they're better than the poor, these, media, these elites. They think they're more educated. They have more money. Therefore, they're better human beings than the poor that they're helping. There's a certain arrogance, this pride. Thinking, oh, I'm this, oh, let me be gracious to you by helping you. Let me feel better about myself by helping you. There is an arrogance, Thomas Sowell says. The way the elites help the poor. They think they have a vision of what life is supposed to be. Let me help you in accordance to my vision. That's why sometimes short-term missions, it kind of brings a bad taste in my mouth, to be honest with you. Because a lot of the students that I, not all of you, God bless all of you, but it seems like a lot of the kids who were raised here go to short-term missions think, even though they, don't never, they never walk with the Lord, thinking they had the right to go evangelize to the mission fields. Why? Not because they know Jesus. But because they think they're better than the poor people that they're serving in the mission fields, because they're raised in America, because their homes have air conditioning, because they went to public high schools here, because they read Shakespeare in high school, they think they're better educated. They're better human beings than the poor that they're helping. 
prideful arrogance, and that is not the motive of the Christian. We help because we are reciprocating the mercy we receive from God. That is all. That's the type of religion that God finds worthy and valuable. Third, and we're almost over. Third thing that God considers pure and pure religion. To keep oneself unstained from the world. How do you know your religion is true? Do you strive not to be contaminated by the world? How do you, what is the world that James talks about here? It is, the, it is the thoughts and values of people who are separated from God. That's the world. There are those who are outside of God. There are those who are enemies of God. And they have thoughts and philosophies. And they try to contaminate our minds. Do you know how the world and the devil attack us? It's through lies. They lie to us. Their lies are kind of disguised in truth a little bit. But it still lies. The world, Satan, tries to defile us through lies. Their lies are shiny and beautiful, but they're lies regardless. When I was a kid in the 80s, U.S. was economically booming. And in the booming economy, people were obsessed with material goods. Those shiny Ferraris, those shiny fashion items. Madison Avenue, New York is saying, if you buy these shiny items, you're going to have prestige, you're going to have acceptance, you're going to have beauty. And people were listening to those lies. And people were obsessed with material things. Good old PJ, how old, the 13-year-old PJ was obsessed with, you know, those polo shirts? That was a hot thing back in the 80s, man, right? In Korea, right? Like, if you have a four-legged polo shirt, like, you know, if your horse has four legs, that's the real deal. If your horse only had three legs, that's fake. If you have a four-legged polo shirt, you're somebody. And I wanted the four-legged polo shirt. Look down upon those who are three-legged. That's the lie. Churches were listening to that. Hence the prosperity gospel. The world says shiny things are what's, where's that? Churches go, God's going to help you get those shiny things. Lie. A lot of churches follow in the law. The way the world lies to us has changed a little bit here. They don't longer offer shiny things at us. They offer politics to us. You need to get on the right political page in order for you to be a good person. The reason why I disagree with woke theology or whatever it is is not because they're totally wrong. I disagree with it because, I disagree with it because they're shallow. They maybe have 10 or 20 like main points, they have like 10 propositions, basically. And they try to fit every human experience according to those 10 propositions. 
woke theology is very shallow. It is. It really is. But people are buying into it as if those 10 propositions is the ultimate truth. Churches are buying into it. Rather than focusing on the real will of God, they engage in those 10, 10 foolish propositions. And they're being lied to. Not only woke theology, look, Republican Party is the same thing. The, the Republican Party is a party of God. No, it ain't. Right? So they lie to us. And the way we combat the lie is through the truth. If you don't listen, if you don't let God speak to you, then you're being lied to, and I'm being lied to. And that's how the world contaminates us. Fight the contamination through the word. Mature in your faith through the word. Control your tongue through the word. What else? Let the gospel, let the word make your heart compassionate. Let the word save you from lies. That's the main point of these two verses. Once again, underneath the premise of all these arguments is the living, speaking God. Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, inviting you to sin. You. Heed that call, will you? So that your religion will be true. Let's pray.